Jeff Levering and wife Ashley love their new patio door from Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. It's like having a brand new kitchen. I love the roll screen. The fact that the screen is on the inside. Get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Studios at the Avenue. It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the old National Bank talk and text line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Lots of stuff and lots of ground to cover on today's program. My favorite stupid criminal story of the day, Franklin Police. Well, here's what they say. Franklin, Wisconsin. Police say two people were hurt and a third person is on the run after a suspicious activity call last night. Officials say around 7.30 p.m., officers responded to a suspicious activity call involving a car near 92nd and West Drexel Avenue. When they arrived on the scene, officers identified two passengers in the car and attempted to identify the female driver. The driver fled in the car, and the two passengers jumped from the car, sustaining injuries. The car then crashed into a tree in a nearby neighborhood, and the driver ran from the crash. Okay, so let's let's kind of back this up. So the cops are already on the scene. They're already, they've identified two of the people that are in the car. So they know two of the three people. The driver then decides to floor it and flee. Two passengers, they jump out of the car and hurt themselves. Real good thinking. The third, in this case the driver, drives the car into a tree in a nearby neighborhood and then runs from the crash. Um, So let's kind of back this up. They know who the driver is, all right? They've got the car. They've got two of the three people who were in the car. So, yes, the the driver has now fled from the scene and ran from the cops. But it's not like we have no idea who this person is. They are at large, but unless unless they've got a plan to stay gone for, I don't know, the rest of their lives, they're going to be caught sometime soon. And as far as the two that jump from the car, okay, what could possibly go wrong with that? So two Jump from the car, sustaining injuries. The third is on the run at the moment, but they know who it is and they know who they're looking for. And by the way, she doesn't have a car anymore. So, all right, really, really smart moves. Like I say, when it comes to chasing criminals, sometimes sometimes it's hard. And then sometimes there's what prosecutors and cops would call low-hanging fruit. This would be a situation of what you would call low-hanging fruit. We always mention this. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can participate in the program, and you can listen, of course, over, on the air, over the air radio. A number of you follow us on the stream. Um, one of the easiest ways to do that is just go to WTMJ.com, click on the Listen Live button, and there we are. And now, the last month or so, we have also, we are now televised. So um, we have our own YouTube channel on WTMJ. Uh, who Who knew? You can also go to WTMJ.com, just click on the Watch Live button, and you can see what we're wearing, and you can watch us do spoken word radio. And I know a number of people end up watching and um, go back, watch the whole show later on. Whatever you want, you can see us, and you can see us from our studio, and we play around with all sorts of different camera angles. Every once in a while, I'll say, hey, that's kind of a cool camera angle. So check it out. All right, let us get started. If you were listening yesterday... 
I, I understand I irritated a couple of you, sorry, by saying that I think this debt ceiling deal is a good deal. Now, that's not saying it's the best deal, but as I always mention to you, politics is the art of the possible. And one of the things that I think is so disappointing is you have some people who get into politics on both the left and the right who end up being ideologues. They end up with this whole idea that they're not going to they're, – they're just – if they don't get everything they want, they're going to say no. Well, the reality is that, that, that in a situation like we have in the federal government where you have the president who is a Democrat, where you have the Senate that is controlled – narrowly, but controlled by Democrats, and you have the House of Representatives that is controlled narrowly by Republicans, you, if you just stig your you know, heels in and say, I'm not going to vote for anything or support anything unless it's absolutely perfect, well, you're not going to get anything done. There, there's going to be no progress at all because, again, you've got this divided government. Politics is the art of the possible. This debt ceiling deal is important to get done. For those of you who haven't been keeping track of this, the the government is about ready to run up to its limit as to how much it can borrow, all right? And so what happens is if you don't raise the debt ceiling, allowing the government to borrow more, you, what you do is the economy is going to be you know, hurt because it's going to hurt the government's credit rating. There's going to be questions about whether or not the government can pay obligations that it has already made. Checks to people might get delayed. You just can't do this. So there has to be some resolution. So what's happened is – Biden and Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, have struck a deal. It is not a perfect deal. There's all sorts of stuff in it that Republicans don't like. Namely, while it does curb spending, it doesn't curb spending as much as some Republicans want. I understand their position. On the flip side, there's things in it that Democrats absolutely hate. First of all, it does not contain massive tax increases. Secondly, it does provide caps and limits, especially on spending that's non-military. It also does things like reinstates the, the student loan payments. You know, Joe Biden has had what seems like a, a permanent uh, moratorium on people having to make their student loan payments. This ends that effective, I think, August 1st or August 30th. People are going to finally have to start paying back the money that they own, owe on student loans. And there's a number of other elements in that as well that the Republicans want. Does it go as far as some Republicans want? No, it doesn't. But what do we keep saying? Politics is the art of the possible. There's one element of this, though, which I think is particularly newsworthy and particularly worthy of conversation. Um there is, and there always has been, for food stamps, the, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, there, there has always been a requirement that if you are an able-bodied adult without dependent children under the age of 50, there is a three-month limit on how long you can stay on food stamps unless you are working or involved in a job training program for 20 hours a week. In other words, 80 hours a month. That's, that's what the rule has been. This rule was suspended during the permanent COVID emergency, and spending on the food stamp program exploded. 
it went from $60 billion in 2019 to $114 billion in 2021. Of 4 million Americans on food stamps, ages 18 to 60, without disability or children at home, fewer than 30% are in a household with earnings. So what, what you have is you have this, a large number of people who just said, hey, th- this, is, this is just absolutely great. Now I can continue to get the food stamps and I don't have to fool around with trying to get a job or train myself. This House bill and part of the agreement is, first of all, it would reinstate the limit that you can only be on food stamps for three months if you, know, you meet all these other criteria. Secondly, it would raise the working age to 54. So in other words, if you are able-bodied, able, able to work, and you do not have dependent children, you would be expected up to the age of 54, you would be expected to either be working part-time or in some sort of job training program 20 hours a week combined. 80 hours a month in order to stay on the food stamp program. Now, that is something that has just driven the left absolutely bananas. Oh, this is terrible. It's a war on the poor, all this type of stuff. But it's in this bill, and it's something that was the Biden administration agreed to. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I want to talk specifically about this work requirement. Is it unreasonable to say that as a condition of continuing to get food stamps, which has never been intended to be something that was permanent, as a condition of getting food stamps, you are, if you're under the age of 54 and you are able to work or attend job training, and you don't have any dependent children, is it unreasonable to say that you got to be working for 20 hours a week or in some job training program? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. And my answer would not just be heck no, but, you know, really double heck no. I mean, what is wrong with that? You've got to get people working. It's not like there aren't jobs that are available. And if people want to continue to Again, get these government benefits. I don't think it's unreasonable at all to expect them to fill some of these jobs that are plentiful and are available. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, the Wall Street Journal has an editorial about this this morning that, that makes this point. One of one of the big differences between the political parties, Republicans and Democrats, is that you have – These days you have many, many Democrats, not all, but many, many Democrats who seem to favor what I'm going to describe as a culture of dependency. Oh, people can't do for themselves for whatever reasons. And so it is the obligation of government to take care of of people and to take care of people forever. So we create this culture of dependency where we say, all right, you know, we're, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you that, we're going to give you the other thing, and therefore we're going to disincentivize you going to work. We're trying to get out of the culture of dependency. And if we've learned nothing over the course of the last 50 years, it should be that this dependence on the welfare state, it doesn't do anybody any favors, and actually it traps an entire class of people, an entire group of people, into into poverty or near poverty because there's no incentive 
given to them to try to better themselves. The flip side is you have the Republican Party that is trying to, I would say, again, favor a a culture of work, understanding that the way you improve yourself and your life long term is by working. It's by advancing in your job, et cetera. Now, nobody's arguing that there shouldn't be a safety net. Of course there is a safety net, and there is nobody's arguing that there shouldn't be um, protections for those who, again, um, for example, aren't able to work. But that's not what this is dealing with. This is identifying able-bodied people who are able to work who aren't. Who are making the decision, well, I'd rather sit around and I'd rather collect checks from the government, which means checks that are paid for by all the people who are working. Well, that's that's fine as far as it goes, but you're never going to better yourself. Jeff, there's nothing in this deal that's actually unreasonable. Everything is acceptable, necessary compromise, as well as the part that you're talking about with um, food stamps. Jeff, this is Brian from West Dallas. I totally agree with the Republicans on this. There's no reason why people cannot work. Part of the reason why we have so many poor people is because they're enabled to stay on the government dole, where if they went out, got better job training and a job, they'd be more successful and have more enjoyment in life. Long term, that that's absolutely true. Look, and I understand that this might mean that there's people who end up doing, you know, crummy jobs, at least starting. Lots of entry-level jobs aren't necessarily that appealing. I get it, but that's why they're entry-level jobs. You get in. You get into the habit of going to work, of supposed, you know, you got to show up. you got to be there. You do a good job. You come back day after day. You end up getting promoted. You develop some skills, and then you're able to use those skills to start moving up the ladder. Meanwhile, if you're just home watching General Hospital every day, well, you might learn what's going on in the soap opera, but it's not going to help you, and it contributes to this generation of poverty Look, and dependency. Look, I understand that this single provision isn't going to suddenly change the, the culture of dependency, but it is a positive first step. And I think this is one of the things that the Republicans need to be doing and talking about over the course of the next year to year and a half, making this argument as to why it is beneficial to force people or at least nudge people strongly, push people, if you will, into getting into the workforce, into developing some sort of job skills, because long-term, that is the key to success, period. If you wonder why people do bad things thinking that they can get away with it, it's because oftentimes when people do bad things, they can get away with it. Let me tell you about the story of Kelsey Nelson, 33. And, and I, mentioned the, I mentioned Kelsey Nelson's age because it's not like he's an 18-year-old kid, right? I mean, it, it's not like, oh, this is just something stupid that some college student did or some high school student did. He's 33 years old. He's the guy that drove the car 
that helped pull down the statute, uh, the statue of the Civil War hero and ab- abolitionist Hans Christian Haig in, in Madison, outside the state capitol. Remember, this June 2020, you have the riots that break out after the whole George Floyd thing. And, you know, interestingly enough, you have a couple of these idiots that decide that they are going to vandalize the statue of an abolitionist. You know, that's out there. Okay, really good. All right, we're going to target this particular statue. So he's the guy that ended up, he was driving the car that pulled over the statue, and the statue, of course, was was damaged as well. But he didn't stop there. In addition to damaging the statue, he looted a nearby jewelry store about a month earlier. So... Here you have a guy, he's out there, he's participating in these riots, and he's using them as a target of opportunity, not only to destroy stuff, but also to loot the jewelry store. All right, so he gets convicted, appears in court last week, tells the court that he's sorry that he did it, but he was someone who was trying to make a difference. Someone trying to make a difference. I destroyed the statue and looted the jewelry store because I was trying to make a difference. Huh. I don't know what difference you're making or trying to make when you destroy public property and when you loot a jewelry store. But that's the weird rationale that was there. So he says, I was just a person who woke up and saw the injustice done to a man named George Floyd. Am I going to say what I did was right? I am not. Okay, well, all right, I I saw that there was injustice, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go out and I'm going to loot a jewelry store, or I'm going to go out and I'm going to destroy a statue of an abolitionist. Okay, so this is what the guy did. He ends up getting convicted. He says he's sorry, but he was just trying to make a difference. So what is his penalty for this? Six months in jail, but he gets work release. So he's out on an almost daily basis. He was also ordered to pay $5,000 to the jewelry store, a cost to be shared with two other people, um, and $2,500 to the State Department of Administration. But if you wonder why people do stuff like this, it's because, all right, they they think that there's not going to be any significant consequences, and they think that because there isn't many significant uh, consequences. You loot a jewelry store, you destroy public property, and your penalty is six months with Huber release. And we wonder why people do this stuff. Okay, so Mike Spaulding, newsman extraordinaire. Can I share a story with you and ask you what question comes to your mind when I share the story, okay? Absolutely. Okay, you're an experienced news guy, so inquiring minds want to know. Here is the story. A 34, uh, and this is the way uh, today's TMJ4 reports it. A 34 year old man was arrested Tuesday, which would be yesterday, after stealing a Shorewood police car near Capitol and Estabrook. All right, kind of right by where our old studios oh, yeah. used to be. The squad was recovered undamaged near Holton and Capitol. Milwaukee police arrested the suspect. He was turned over to the Shorewood Police Department. So, guy steals a Shorewood police car. All right. The suspect in the case was identified as the same man who stole a Milwaukee police squad car in December of 2022. There were no injuries reported in that incident. Okay, so the question is, is there a question that pops into your mind based on that? Yes. And that would be? How is this guy a repeat offender? Absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm looking at this story, 
And uh, it, it's like, okay, let's roll back the tape. He steals a Milwaukee police squad car in December of 2022, not December of 2021, not 20, not 19. Okay, five or six months ago, he steals a police squad car, a Milwaukee squad car, and he is out on the street in a position to steal a Shorewood police car five months later. My second question would be, what do you do once you get into it? I mean, obviously you drive, but it's all you only made it a, a block and a half or something like. What, but, what do you? That's that's good. What do, do you do? Go? What What do you do with the car? <laughs> no, that that's fair. I mean, it's it's that that's a fair question too because it's not like you steal this car and you you go through it looking to see if there's stuff in it. You know, right? A, a squad car. You take it for a little bit of a joyride. That's a good question too. But but ding ding ding. Yeah. The first one is one that popped into my mind, and and they haven't released his name yet. I, I can't wait for that because I, I as soon as they do, I want to run this guy through CCAP because my guess is, my guess is it's not his first time at the rodeo. Would you're, be my guess. Yeah, the first car you're trying to steal, probably not a police car. <laughs> Something tells me you have a little bit of experience doing that. But you are exactly right. And see, and this is, and and I know, and the reason I wanted to do that is because I know that th- this is. Look, it's not particularly great insight on Mike's part or my part, and I'm sure everybody's seeing the story, saying, "How in the world is this guy out on the street?" in a position to steal another squad car five months after he stole the first one. Inquiring minds want to know. And part of the answer is there were no consequences tying into what we talked about before. There was absolutely no consequences to stealing the police squad car in December of 2022. So surprise follows surprise. He steals a Shorewood police car in 2023. And if they don't come down hard on him, you know very well that he's going to be stealing a Wauwatosa police car or a Mequon police car or some other police car, you know, three months from now as well. Stay tuned. We'll continue to keep you updated. Yeah. How how can you continue to be allowed to do this? Oh, wait, it's Milwaukee County. When we come back, Tony Evers says he might have to give back some of the money. We'll discuss. That is a good question, though. What do you do with a squad car after you've stolen it? I mean, it's like, oh, okay, I'm in the squad car. I want to take it for a joyride. It's, you know, I just, but I, I suspect a lot of people just don't think that next step. It's kind of like when you run across these criminals that, that don't have the impulse control that a fruit fly has, it's kind of like you get in the car and, hey, this is good. I've, I've stolen the car. Now what do I do with it? Hmm. Well, in any event, hopefully, hopefully, finally, this character is not going to be out on the street for a long while stealing other squad cars. Just saying. All right. One of the things that if, if you watch the way government operates, one of the things that you see over and over and over and over and over again is that once there is a benefit that is given to people by the government. I say, quote unquote, given to people by the government, which means given to people by the taxpayers. Once that benefit is there, it doesn't matter what the justification for it was. It doesn't matter whether it was temporary. Once that benefit is there, it becomes almost impossible to roll that benefit back. You know, you've seen that over the last couple months during during COVID. 
the idea was that we were going to, matter of fact, they, they expanded, as long as we're talking about like food stamp benefits, supplemental nutrition benefits and stuff like that, because so many people lost their jobs and because the economy just took such a, a downturn because of the shutdowns caused by the pandemic and government orders shutting things down. So we, we had a, a temporary situation where what we're going to do is we're going to increase for example, the amount of money that we give to people who are qualifying for food stamps or whatever. And the justification was this is a it's a it's a temporary sort of thing because of the unique conditions caused by the pandemic. All right. Well, okay, the pandemic is over. Even Joe Biden says that. And so when it comes time to say, all right, we were kicking out all this additional money. Um, because there was the pandemic. Now the pandemic is over. It's time to stop that. You have all this kicking and screaming. Well, how do you expect people to make do? That extra $400 a month that they were getting made a difference. Well, well sure it did. But, but it was a temporary sort of thing. It all goes back to what we're talking about, about this culture of dependency and how hard it is to take something away once you have given it, even if you've only given it for a limited purpose. And you see that all the time. It's why it's so very, very difficult to rein in government spending. Now, as part of this debt ceiling deal— that has been worked out between the Speaker of the House and the President. One of the other elements that I personally find to be very appealing is the fact that for money that was paid to the states by the federal government for use during the pandemic, for, you know, again, the emergency, for now that the emergency is over, For money that has not been used, there is a provision that would allow the federal government to, quote unquote, claw it back, to take back the money. So if Wisconsin, what's the number? Wisconsin got almost $450 million in federal funds that they have not spent as of yet. So about $450 million. Now, the state got billions of dollars, but $450 million that has not been spent that was intended to, again, help people get through the pandemic. Well, the pandemic, we have gotten through it. The pandemic is over. So as a provi- as a condition of, again, this debt ceiling deal, the feds would be able to go to all the different states that haven't spent a portion of this money and say, okay, we're, we want some or all of it back because we gave it to you for use, you know, to help people during COVID and you didn't spend it, didn't need it, whatever, but now it, it's time to, to give it back to us. Kind of like, I don't know if you have like a private business and as part of the budget, let's say you're on a, a fiscal year basis and at the end of the year, let's say you have $100,000 in, in a travel budget during the year. And at the end of the year, turns out you've only spent $60,000 of that travel budget. Well, all right, the company is going to say, okay, you've got this extra $40,000. We're, we're going to pull it out of that year's travel budget and we're going to take it back. This is the same sort of thing. We've given you money that you were to use to help get through the pandemic 
you've taken a lot of the money, and this is stuff that's left over. Now we want it back. So the story in the local newspaper says Wisconsin officials are preparing to send back some of the federal pandemic funding that has not been spent as of yet. Governor Tony Evers told reporters on Tuesday his administration is planning for the possibility. Um, We haven't heard anything yet because I don't think the written document exists. So we're planning all across our agencies. We're looking at what is known and seeing how much money we would have to send back. We're not anywhere near because we don't know what this is. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. Right now, they estimate that there's across the country, there's about $30 billion in unspent Federal pandemic relief dollars, about $450 million of which is in Wisconsin. So there, there's money all over. And this bill would say, okay, if you haven't spent it, we're taking it back. Is there anything wrong with that? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. And my answer would be absolutely not. Of, of course not. Take the money back. It was given for a specific purpose The end, that purpose has now ended. Let's take the dough back. That's the only way you ever get control of spending. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. So, I mean, here is the deal. During the pandemic— We, by we, I mean the taxpayers through the government, particularly the federal government, we started throwing money. And it's one of the reasons why inflation is as out of control as it is. We started throwing money at the states. We started throwing money at individuals in an effort to try to help people get through COVID. We, we didn't do any sort of means testing at all. Remember, you know, if you if you were below a certain adjusted gross income, you, you got a check. You, you got a stimulus check even if you weren't adversely affected by COVID. Even if you never lost your job, boom, you, you got the money. Even if you were retired and had huge amounts in your retirement income in retirement accounts, you, you, got, you got the money. We just gave away money because there were some people that were adversely affected. And rather than trying to figure out, gee, who really needs this, we're just going to give this dough to, to everybody. And we're going to give it to the governments, the state governments to spend. And we're going to give it to local governments. And we're going to assume that they're going to spend this well. Okay, fine. The pandemic is now over. Nobody argues with that basic point. And there's a lot, there's billions, tens of billions of dollars in money that was given for the express purpose of helping get through the pandemic that hasn't been spent. And so now, as a condition of this this debt ceiling deal, Republicans say, well, we want the money back. You know, we're going to, the phrase is, claw it back. We're going to take this back because the purpose is now over. We didn't, it wasn't spent. And that's not to say that, I mean, my, my goodness, people could certainly find ways to spend it. You know, we've seen that. But it was specifically to try to help people get through COVID. One of our texters says, um, many years ago, I had an opportunity to speak with Paul Ryan at a forum. He said that the hardest thing about being a fiscal conservative is that you have to say no 100% of the time because no federal spending program ever ends at all. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. You've got to, oh, well, you know, we, we have this money. One of our texters says, well, we, we could, you know, if we've got $450 million, you, know, you, could, you could send it to the schools. Okay, well, okay, but that wasn't the purpose. The purpose of the money wasn't to, here, we're going to take $450 million in federal tax money, send it to the state of Wisconsin so it can put it into the school system. That's not what it was for. It was designed to help the state of Wisconsin get through the pandemic. We are now through the pandemic. Jeff, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. It's called use it or lose it. It is the standard of which the military operates. Unfortunately, because of this use it or lose it policy, there's often careless spending that happens as you approach these deadlines. But most certainly, that money should go back into our federal system. If you haven't used it yet or have a plan to use it, then it should be returned. Um, yeah, it, and it is It is that simple. And the texter is absolutely right. You know, in another life, I worked for the federal government. It was exactly that. What would happen is you reach the end of the fiscal year, and actually that's where my example of a travel budget came, and you would see that, boy, you have X amount of dollars in your office travel account. And so the concern was always, well, we have to figure out, let's find conferences to send people on, because if we don't spend this, then we're not going to get it next year. That's the way bureaucrats think. That's the way stuff operates. But it's it's never, ever, ever going to be a way that you get a handle on budgets and you get a handle on government spending. So – I understand that people in Wisconsin um, are probably not happy. That would be, you know, individual municipalities who thought that they had some COVID money that they could spend on whatever their pet project was. And they're not going to be happy that some of that money is going to have to go back to the taxpayers. It's going to go back to the federal government. And my argument would be it should go back to the people who paid it which is why it's so interesting to me when we have these conversations about this budget surplus that we're looking at, somehow, somehow the idea of giving this surplus back to the people who overpaid it, you and me, somehow that, that's not on the table anymore, but it, it should be. In any event, you've got this dynamic that is going on. All right, when we come back, after the top of the hour news, is it bigotry, the war on Skittles, And Summerfest adds a female performer. We'll talk about all three of those in the 1 o'clock hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. It's really getting interesting now. I know there's some people out there who are just resigned to the fact that 2024 is going to be a rerun of 2020 Biden and Trump. And as I've argued before, if that's the case, Biden is going to win and Biden's going to win big. There's just I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I understand there's some people saying, no, 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 you know, you, you Trump has got this locked up. I don't think that's the case at all. And it's interesting because you're now seeing more and more Republicans getting into the race. Last week, Tim Scott, who is the Republican senator from South Carolina, who has an incredibly compelling backstory. It also doesn't hurt the fact that he's um, black and tells the story. And he's he kind of he, he challenges the mainstream narrative that if you are born a person of color, that you cannot overcome that and you cannot succeed. So Tim Scott, and he's got a real interesting message of positivity, and and I'm a huge fan of Tim Scott. Um, in addition, this week, 
Ron DeSantis has finally gotten in the race, the very successful governor from Florida. He's out in Iowa right now, and he's the, the gloves are starting to, to come off. And for the longest time, you know, Trump was using DeSantis as a, as a punching bag. Now DeSantis is starting to fire back, and he's he's resonating with some of the voters in Iowa. He's going to be going to New Hampshire later on this week. I think today's in Iowa. Tomorrow he's back in Florida, and then he's going to be up in New Hampshire. But he he's starting to respond. He's got some great lines, you know, for and one of the things was for, you know, Trump says how awful, you know, Florida is as I've been governor. He said, well, that's, you know, why I was governor. It's when Trump and his whole family moved down to Florida. How bad could it possibly be? So you've got DeSantis, who has a ton of money and is going to position himself as a more populist, more likable, less offensive, less conflicted um, version of, of Trump. The, the Trump policies, perhaps, without all the other baggage that Trump brings. Now the reports are that Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, he's going to be getting into the race uh, next week. Chris Christie, I love Chris Christie. I, I mean, if, if you have watched Chris Christie in various television appearances since he left the, the governorship, and before he was the governor of New Jersey, he was a federal prosecutor. I think he was the new, the uh, U.S. attorney from the New Jersey area. Um, Chris Christie, he, he's, he's got a lot of that New York, New Jersey in him, and you know he's not going to be a punching bag for Donald Trump as well. He, he's already coming out with some great one-liners and zingers. My, my point of all this is, for people who don't think this is going to be just a fascinating and incredibly competitive race leading up to the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee next summer, you just have not been paying attention. Because um, Chris Christie, he's he's ready. Um, he's he, he's going to hit the ground running. And if Donald Trump is perceived to be the front runner, well, I, I mean, I think Trump better be prepared because, you know, Christie isn't afraid of him and he's not going to back down. So you've got Nikki Haley, who's in the race. And people I know who who know Nikki Haley have been very, very impressed with her. She hasn't gained traction yet. But again, it's still early. You've got Tim Scott. You've got um, Ron DeSantis. You've got Chris Christie. And there will be others as well. I don't know if former Vice President Mike Pence is going to get in the race. But you're, you're going to have a, a lot of very, very compelling candidates. And it's going to be an interesting race. And for everybody who just says, oh, this is going to be Trump-Biden all over again, I continue to believe that you are incorrect. And I don't think for a variety of reasons. I continue to not believe that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. Some is going to be the political stuff. Some is going to be fundraising. Some might be stuff beyond Trump's control. That is, if there are multiple other indictments that come out in connection with this. But I think it's going to be a really, really, really interesting time. Okay. Is she a bigot? Samantha Ponder. Don't know how many people know that name. Samantha Ponder is an ESPN host. She's worked at ESPN for the last 10 years or so, and and right now her assignment since 2017, her most high-profile assignment, has been that she is the... um, She's the the host of the NFL Sunday Countdown on on ESPN, and and that might be where you've seen her. Um, She has been called a bigot by a USA Today columnist named Nancy Armour. And I tell you what, let me take a very quick break. When we come back, I'll tell you what the controversy is about, and then we'll discuss whether or not 
what she said crossed the line. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Just as an aside, for anybody who wonders about the the relevance of, of AM radio or these plans that automakers have to remove AM radios from cars, which isn't in my opinion, it's not driven by the fact that nobody listens to AM radio. It's it's driven by the fact that the car manufacturers have deals with satellite. I was serious, like an XM, and their in their interest is in trying to get you to pay money to subscribe to the satellite services. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the car makers, see, they don't get money by putting an AM radio or an FM radio in cars. And so I think that this idea that here we're going to we're going to go after the AM radios and then mark my words, they're going to go after the FM radios. And your choice of, of entertainment then is going to be subscribing to the satellite service or, or streaming, which you can, in fact, do. But for people who think it's not otherwise relevant, you, you're, you're hearing this Amber Alert and we play it like every 30 minutes. Um, you know, the emergency alert system is all it's all tied into AM radio and you take that away and people aren't going to be able to hear that. Just saying. OK, we were talking about bigotry. So Samantha Ponder is is an ESPN host. She's been an ESPN host for about 10 years, most known for probably since 2017. She's been the host of their Sunday game day. So that, that's who she is. Um, Riley Gaines is a former female swimmer from the University of Kentucky, and she's been one of these people who've been very, very vocal about transgender athletes, biological males who identify as females competing in women's sports. And if you remember a year ago or so, there was the the one swimmer who was a biological male who had gone through some treatments, but was just winning. You know, he, he was a he as a he he was an average collegiate swimmer. As a she, um, she was winning all sorts of awards. And what you were seeing happen was women were women biological women were were losing out to the biological men who, you know, were transgender. Well, what happened over the weekend is there was a California high schools. There was a like track meet and there were a couple of transgender athletes, biological males who were in the process of transitioning to female who entered to compete in like the state track meet um, and, and run against the biological girls. All right. So what happened is this became very, very controversial. Court said that under California law, they've got a right to do it. But there were a lot of the female athletes, their parents, etc., who were stepping up and saying, look, this is wrong. They have an unfair advantage as, as boys. These were average to below average runners as competing against the girls well they immediately become potential favorites to win the 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 meets but the court said they get to compete there was a huge controversy and ultimately the the athletes decided that they they it was too controversial so they pulled out so this did not happen well all right so how does this fit in with samantha ponder well all right riley Gaines. Again, the 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 um, I don't know if it's fair to say anti-transgender activist. She's anti-transgender people competing in sports outside of their biological sex. Okay, so she she sends out a tweet talking about this, and the response that Samantha Ponder sends out is this: 
I barely said anything publicly about this issue, and I've had so many people messaging me, stop me in the street and say thank you and tell me stories about girls who are afraid to speak up for fear of lost employment being called hateful. It is not hateful to demand fairness in sports for girls. So essentially she's saying it's not fair to biological girls to have them competing in athletics against biological boys. All right, so that, that's the background on this. Into this weighs Nancy Armour, who is a very, very liberal columnist for sports columnists for USA Today. Here's some of the things she writes. Don't be fooled by people who screech about fairness to cloak their bigotry towards transgender girls and women, the transgender girls and women who have the audacity to want to play sports in particular. This is and always was about hate, fear, and ignorance. ESPN Samantha Ponder is the latest to tell on herself, using a tweet by anti-trans activist Riley Gaines to fight for the integrity of Title IX and then patting herself on the back for her support of women's sports. Ponder's quest for fairness is unsurprisingly a sham. And then it goes on to talk about how anybody who objects to the transgender athletes competing in this fashion, all they are are, are bigots. And they're transphobic and all the things of the like. So and this gets just a a ton of attention, which, you know, gets Samantha Ponder responding. She says, look, biology is not bigotry. Loving people does not require the absence of boundaries. Her point being that, you know, if simply because you don't want biological men competing in women's sports, doesn't mean you're transphobic or anti-trans or whatever. It's just setting boundaries. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. If you believe that biological men, biological boys, shouldn't be competing interscholastically against biological girls, does that make you transphobic or anti-trans, or is there a legitimate interest in saying, you know what, we're trying to protect female sports, and the truth of the matter is that boys and girls are different, and if you are born biologically a male, you just have a different body structure than people who are born female, and it has nothing to do with if you want to live your life, you know, as a member of a if you if you were born male and you want to live your life as a female, or or vice versa. Does it make it anti? Does it make you a bigot if you just again say that you know biological boys should be competing against biological boys and biological girls should be competing against biological girls 8556161620 what do you think we discuss 8556161620 which is the old national bank talk and text line look i i enjoy watching women's golf on television because the truth of the matter is i can I can relate a lot more to the game that the women golfers play because you, you watch the pro golfers on the PGA Tour, for example. I can't hit the ball 325 yards. I, I can't. The women cannot hit the ball as far as the men can hit the ball on the professional golf tour. That's just the reality. It's because boys and girls are built differently, but it doesn't mean that they're not really, really good. But again, the biologic, the biology is different. If you watch WNBA games and compare it to, you know, NBA games, almost every NBA player can dunk the ball. 
almost every NBA player can. can. Uh, very, very few female NBA, WNBA players can dunk. Why? It's just because it, it's different. Body types are different. Does it make you a bigot if you suggest that, gee, biological males, regardless of how they identify in life, and nobody's saying that they can't identify with whatever they want, but that they should not be able to compete against biological females like in interscholastic sports. Are you a bigot if you take that position? And by the way, almost all of the polling shows that about 60 to 70 percent of the American public agrees with the position that Sam Ponder was, Sam Pamantha Ponder was, was talking about. Mike in Crystal Lake. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, uh, there's a real simple answer to this, and that is that you cannot change your sex. You can have cosmetic surgery. You can have drug treatments, but you cannot change your sex. A boy is always going to be a boy. A girl is always going to be a girl, no matter how they dress or act or whatever cosmetic surgery they might have. But it all boils down to you cannot have a sex change. Well, I mean, th- thanks for right. No, th- oh, I'm sorry. I hit the button, Mike. I apologize. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, you, you can, right, you can, you can treat, you can take hormones um, to reduce levels of testosterone, but you cannot, you, you can't change your basic body type. You know, that's the thing with the, with the swimmers, the guy, the, Woman, I'm not trying to be, I, I mean, I, again, I, I don't care how you want to identify. That doesn't make any difference to me. But you just see this when you see the guy who was an, as a competing as a male was a good, but essentially an average collegiate swimmer becomes, you know, a, a top tier competitor when he slash now she is competing against females. It's the biology. You don't change the body structure and, you know, you don't change the muscle structure. And that's why it's an unfair advantage. Betty in Waukesha. Betty, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi. You know how you sometimes get these subjects and you say you just want to beat your head against the desk? Right. Or my head explodes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or that, yeah, okay, same. <laughs> that is how I would have felt because I was a competitive athlete my whole young life. The amount of work and discipline and hours and hours to go into that, to compete against people that are of your same, like, it just isn't fair. If I would have spent all that time and this would have happened, like with that Lee and the swimmer, mm-hmm. I, you know. Right. Come on. What, what was it's your? Just, I'm curious, Betty. What, what was your sport? There. What was your sport? Well, I, I actually got a scholarship to West Point Academy in 1979, and and had I not had a father that probably was willing to write the check everywhere for my education, I would have done it. There were a hundred girls at the time at West Point. Everybody had to get their hair cut. That's really all I needed to know. Mm-hmm. You know. But what? Yeah, but what but, sport? Um, what sport were you competing in? Volleyball. Oh, volleyball. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay. I, I, I competed in every single sport. Soccer wasn't around then. Every single sport, but tennis, because it was opposite of track. 
Sure. Well, I mean, uh, l- I mean, let's let us let us take track and imagine. Okay, you're 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 a runner, you know, as a female, and you're you know in the top ten percent, and all of a sudden, a couple transgender people who are biologically males say, "Hey, we're identifying as females, whatever," and then they come over and they want to compete, and all of a sudden they start passing you you by simply because. Boys are built differently than girls are, and you can't change that. Yeah, I understand why you'd be mad as you know what. And I don't understand why people don't get that. Right. Well, because we're bigots. I guess we're because we're we're, we're viewed as, as bigots. No. Now, thanks for the call, Betty. I mean, again, it's it's. I mean, I just this, this controversy. It and it's just well, you you have to be you're transphobic and you're a bigot. No, that, nobody is saying that people you know can't be able to transition and can't live their life with whatever. But it's a fundamental point of of trying to, in this case, you know, protect girls' sports. And a couple of our texters are making the point that you don't often see the female who is a a born female top athlete going over and competing in male sports if they transition that way. Why is that? Well, it's because, what do we say, there's a difference between boys and girls. And pointing that out, I I don't believe, makes you a bigot. Now, here's a text. Jeff, as a woman, this topic makes me so mad. As an athlete who competed in high school and college, I can't imagine competing against biological men who are trans. Women have worked so hard to get their rights under Title IX, and now this is setting women backwards. I believe most Americans agree that men, biological men shouldn't compete in women's sports and there's just a few folks trying to make policy for all we we need common sense jeff i play co-ed volleyball for fun in ozaki county most teams use four guys and two girls the reason why it's typically easier for a six foot guy to spike the ball with a 32 inch vertical than it is for a female who's five five with a 20 inch vertical these are just genetic differences um well, you know, there there is an element to that. I have two very, very dear friends who played um, at a very played volleyball at a very high collegiate level. They're both really, really tall, and they're both really, really good athletes. But I think they would acknowledge that um, my friend who is male, well, he he can jump higher. He can hit the ball harder, which isn't to say that my female friend isn't a really, really dynamite volleyball player and and might get the best of, well, certainly would get the best of me if we were playing volleyball against each other. But when you're talking about that top level of competition, the think about the NBA, the top men are going to perform better than the top women. It's why we have male sports and female sports, period. When we come back, are you ready to give up your Skittles? California says, yeah. A couple of our listeners are um, following this this horrible story about what happened on Brady Street Sunday night, Monday morning. It was 2 a.m. Monday morning, 1300 block of East Brady Street. Um, 41-year-old man, known very, very well known to the community. His name is Quincy, referred to as Quincy, and he, he worked at the pizza shuttle down there. He was the victim of a hit-and-run driver. He's in the hospital with life-threatening injuries. Um, apparently, he was he was crossing the street when he was hit by a silver SUV. The uh, driver, as unfortunately happens all the time, the driver um, took off. And, and fled. 
and the, the police are now looking. Now, the thing the thing that happens with these various hit and runs is that um, there's there's pictures, for example, that the vehicle that was involved in this, and there's a photograph that's up that's available. It's a 2011 to 2017 silver Jeep Patriot. You know, who, who knows how many of those are around. But, of course, there, there's, as a result of the hit and run, there's extensive damage to the front of the hood. And the police are asking that anybody who has any information might, if you would please come forward and contact them. You know, hit and runs are, aside from the fact that, that there's just so damn many of them now, typically, historically, the, these have been they're, – they're easier to solve than many other crimes because – You've got a description. In this case, you know, you've, you've got a description. They know it, it's a 2011 to 2017 Silver Jeep Patriot. So you're able to narrow down the universe of vehicles that are out there. And presumably, you know, you can go through and you can search Department of Transportation records and you can find, you know, how how many how many of these Jeep Patriots are there in, in the area. Now, I guess it could be an out-of-state car, but let's, you know, you, you can narrow this down. On top of that... Um, you, you have damage to the car. So somebody who's driving the car and is involved in the hit and run, they've got to, they've got to stash the car. And then, but at some point in time, unless they're going to have the vehicle just like permanently stashed, they have to figure out a way to get this repaired, etc. And that's why you know you alert body shops and things like that. You know, or people say, well, you know, it's funny, I heard about this, and you know, so and so two doors down, they've got a Jeep Patriot, and it, it's in the garage now, and they haven't brought it out in a couple of days. So, in any event, if you've got any information about this, people that might drive the appropriate car damage on the front of the hood, contact the Milwaukee Police because this is a matter that's getting a ton of attention. And unfortunately, it's this all-too-familiar situation um, involving hit-and-runs. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, the war on Skittles. Are you ready to give up your candy? Stick around. Four words. Four words. All you need to know. Don't California my Skittles. If you have not been following this story, this is the latest attack from the crazy left. All right. um, Skittles, along with many other candies, contains, you know, in order to get the colors on the on the on the Skittles, what they have is there, there is chemicals that they put into them. And in order to they get the color and they also extend the shelf life. And you will find a handful of chemicals. They're in pretty much every kind of candy and in cookies and in frostings and all those type of things. And there's there's five different chemicals. BVO, potassium bromate, propyrabellum, red dye number three, and titanium dioxide. Titanium dioxide is, is found in Skittles. And it's what gives Skittles the color and it's what gives them the, the shelf life. And again, if you're looking for um, like red dye number three, you find that in lots of packaged cookies and frostings and other snacks. All right, this the FDA has allowed these different chemicals since the 1960s, and the FDA permits food added additives to enhance color, texture, and taste as long as they are generally recognized as safe. And these various chemicals have been generally recognized as safe since the 19. 19- 60s. All right. Um, there are people on the left who have decided we, we want to get all these chemicals out of 
out of the various candies and things like that. To which you say, hey, first of all, they're, they're junk food, okay? Nobody's arguing that this is necessarily, if you're going to eat a whole bunch of Skittles, that it's necessarily going to be like, like a health-conscious thing. But the question is, do these chemicals, which have been in these products for 50, 60, 70 years, are they causing problems? So the FDA takes a look at these last year. They do a review, and they find that there is no evidence to suggest dietary exposure to the additive that they put in Skittles is a concern for human health. And they say in part because absorption from food is very low. Even in animal studies, there's no evidence of toxicity from investigation. Red dye number three, you find that in Pez, in uh, gummies, box cake mixes, instant rice, potato products, tomato sauces, corn chips, strawberry protein um, drinks. About 3,000 different items contain this dye. Now, they've done these studies, and they find that when they study rats, they have found if your extremely high levels of the chemical can cause thyroid cancer, but there's been no link established in humans. And what they found is that in um, even if a high level, just you know, astronomical levels, they don't think that it, it causes problems with humans since it's poorly um, absorbed by human bodies. But yet you have people in the left in California who've decided, well, we're we're going to go to war on Skittles. And so there's a movement going through the legislature which would ban these different chemicals in in these different food products in California. And so the argument would be, hey, we can affect the nation because California is a big market. And if we pass a law saying Skittles with this particular ingredient can't be sold in California, well, titanium dioxide. Well, that means that the Skittles manufacturers, because they don't want to lose the California market, they're going to change up and they'll take this out on all the Skittles that they sell across the country. Skittles, for example, says, hey, we've studied this. And first of all, there's no evidence that suggests that this is a safety matter. But secondly, you know, consumers... You know, consumers want the colors. Consumers like the texture that is there. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. There's nothing in real science that suggests that this stuff causes cancer in any sort of reasonable usage or other problems as well. To me, this is the classic example of a solution looking for a problem. But what they're doing in California is they're trying to force the manufacturers by changing the law in one state to change it all over. So here's my concern. Are you ready to give up eating Skittles? 855-616-1620 packaged cookies, all these different things, because somebody somewhere is afraid that even though there's no really hard evidence that suggests this, but if you give rats a whole bunch of this in a concentration that humans would never have, there may, may be problems with the rats. 855-616-1620. My take, don't California my Skittles. Back with your calls in just a moment. One of our texters says, Jeff, give me a bag of Skittles, and by the way, I want my lawn darts back. Yeah, I, I grew up, I somehow survived a childhood of, of, of playing with jarts as well. Jeff, doesn't the left always say follow the science? Oh, right, only when it fits their narrative, to which I say absolutely amen on that one. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
Hi, Jeff. As a former job of the hut, um, I think this is incredibly misguided because I, I used to eat like two or three candy bars and like two or three ice cream treats a day. And the way that I lost weight was not by cutting this out or banning this for myself. What I did is I just limited myself and ate it in moderation. And I think that it's better for them to not ban stuff, but just encourage moderation in more positive ways. Well, thanks for calling, Jeff. Well, and, and the point is, look, if anybody, if there was serious scientific evidence saying that people who have been eating Skittles over however many years they've had Skittles, the, the, these these various dyes, these chemicals we're talking about have been ubiquitous. They are in thousands and thousands of everyday foodstuffs, and there's no link to any sort of you know health concern. There's no verifiable link to this. But the idea is that, well, but there might be something somewhere, so what we're going to do is ban them. And the effect of that is going to be you're going to have like products that don't have as long a shelf life. You're going to have products that don't look the same, that might not taste the same. If, if there was significant evidence that there was a health problem, I think everybody would be on board with this. But like one of our sex texters says, you know, we're supposed to follow the science. Well, the science does not support this idea that we're going to ban these things, but yet we're going to do it because it's going to make some lefty legislators in California feel better. Okay, here's what I think maybe they should do. Give up the California market. Say, all right, we're going to continue to make these things. If this means it cannot be shipped to California, fine. We'll see how people in California like going without their Skittles. Don't give in to the lunatic fringe. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Wyatt, you ever watched Ted Lasso on Apple TV? I have not. People keep telling me to, but I have not. All right. Well, it just, it just uh, it ended last night. You know, uh, oh, I didn't know it was ending so soon. I knew it was the last years. season. Right, last season. So, yeah, they, they just the, the last uh, episode dropped, and um, I, I'm not – no spoilers. We're not going to say what, what ended up happening. It was sort of interesting. I, um, I, my theory is – first of all, I, I will just say in general, I, I, I liked the, the final episode. I, I, thought, I thought it was a good episode ending they might do a spin-off but ted lasso i i think is is the show in it itself is in and of itself is over but it was interesting there's three seasons of it i thought i thought the first season was great i thought the second season was okay i thought this season was just kind of eh. um i've seen some of that online uh did you watch succession jeff another, i have not another seen show that. that just ended uh over the weekend Oh yes, except that I've watched the first. That's the uh, yeah, that's the HBO one. Yeah, yeah I, I, wa- I watched the first year of it. Um, I binged it a, a few weeks ago, and so I have the last three years to watch. Yeah. yeah, it just it just finished up on Sunday. I've just been hearing a lot about these prestige streaming shows finishing up soon. Well, you know, I, I bring this up because it, it's it's my theory, and I think it's I'm proven wrong or I'm proven right more than wrong that. The TV shows have a certain lifespan and a shelf life, and they tell a story. And if if they go on too long, they, they tell the same story over and over again. My classic is I'm a huge fan of The Sopranos, but The Sopranos ran six seasons. If you and, and they were recycling plots. If you watch The Sopranos in season five, it's doing the same stories that it did in its second year. Now, 
the, the people might be a little different, but it's essentially the, the same story. So I think the, some of these shows, and Breaking Bad was a great one. They had this vision of where they wanted to start and where they wanted to go. And it was going to take them six seasons to do it. And then despite the fact that there was still a lot of money to be made, they they you know ended it because they didn't want to repeat themselves. Yeah, no, I, I think you can usually tell as well, uh, especially in retrospect, once a show should have ended versus right. where it d- did end. I think the the uh, the biggest culprits of this are sitcoms. Oh yeah, that, that go on for well, you know, it's funny you would mention that because over the weekend, I, uh, Fran and I were watching HBO just dropped a, a HBO Max just dropped a, a, a documentary on Mary Tyler Moore, you know, who's yeah. Laura Petrie on the Dick Van Dyke Show and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and in both those cases. They ended those sitcoms. I mean, Dick Van Dyke for the Dick Van Dyke show and Carl Reiner, who was the guy that wrote it, their plan was we're going to do five years and, and we, we have a story to tell and we're concerned that if we try, even though it's an incredibly popular show, if we go beyond five seasons, we're just, we're going to be repeating ourselves. We want to go out on top. Uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was groundbreaking in the seventies, that was the same deal there. I mean, it was, it was a top rated show and they decided, no, Originally, it was going to be six years, and then they decided to continue it for a seventh season, and and then they decided to end it because if we keep going on and on, we're doing the same stories over and over again. Yeah, I talk about uh, with my partner sometimes because they will put on sitcoms in the background just to, right. to have going on, almost like a almost like a podcast. And you can tell at the point where they should have ended the show because all of the characters who were really young at the beginning, and it was about right. a young group of friends, they're all married with kids and somehow still hanging out constantly well, despite... All having infants. Right, exactly. And so that's why I always, I mean, like, I'm, I'm a fan of Ted Lasso. I think it ended well. But I, I do think, I mean, that the quality of the show w- was going downhill. So, I mean, I think in that case it was three seasons. I mean, I just think back on, on a lot of these these shows that are on there now. Uh, Justified a couple years ago was one of them. I'm, just, I'm glad to see some of the people that produce these shows saying, look, even though people aren't tired of the characters yet, We've told the story that we set out to tell, and we, we, even though there's money to be made and we can certainly ride the wave for another year or two, it, it's time to move on. And I think that's one of the toughest things to do, but I, 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 I love to see it. And Ted Lasso, great show. I think the finale was great. I think the third season was kind of a letdown compared to the first two. So I'm glad to see him go out on top. So, um, it, and, and I apply that to a lot of ones. I'll, I'll have my, I, I guess, Succession. I watched the first year. It, it kind of reminded me of Dallas in in a way. Um, uh, but I, I, I I'm going to reserve my thoughts till I watch the rest of it. And the one show that I haven't seen yet that everybody raves about is Yellowstone. And I still, I, I'm saving that. That's going to be. One week, I'm going to binge on Yellowstone. But if you were a fan of Ted Lasso, the third season is now in the books. It's available if you've got Apple TV. When we come back, all right, is it rude to do something? And if somebody does it to you, how do you respond? I will explain. We will discuss. Do not go anywhere. Lots of people on the text line weighing in on shows that jump the shark. Charlie, you know where that reference comes from, right? Jumps the Shark, Happy Days. Yep, uh, Happy Days. Incredibly successful show set in Milwaukee. And um, after, I don't know if it was like season five or whatever, they had this thing where Fonzie, 
the Henry Winkler character, wearing a his black leather motorcycle jacket, was water skiing and jumped over a shark. People generally agree that that was the point that Happy Days probably started going downhill and I've always believed that it's best to go out on top and, you know, you don't you don't want to jump the shark. All right. This summer, a number of you will be going to the airport. You will be checking your bags. You will be going through TSA. You will be waiting with your boarding pass, whether it's in your hand or on your phone. You will get onto the plane. You will stow your luggage in the uh, the bin above there. You will settle into your seat. And then there are two types of people in the world. Once the plane takes off and gets to its cruising altitude, there are two types of people in the world sitting on those planes. One type is the person that immediately pushes those buttons on the side of their seat and reclines their seat. The other type of person is the person who would love to recline their seat, but just recognizing that everything we're just, and again, I'm talking about the, the regular size seats. First class is different. So let's forget if you're in first class, but you're in the regular sized economy seat. You are crammed in there. And the second type of person is the person who says, man, I would really like to recline my seat. But if so, it's going to be rude for the person who's behind me. So you know what? Even though the seat can recline, even though I might technically have a right to do it, it's not the right thing to do. You hear that on this program a lot. So I am not going to recline the seat. Now, I have a very strong feeling about this because I am one, And um, flying on these planes is, well... It's it's not fun when I'm when unless I am flying with the dog that goes under the seat. In that case, I, I find the window seat. I I sit on the aisle. That's my that's the spot because it gives me a little bit of room to stretch out my my legs. Um, so I have a little bit more room. So I look for the aisle seats. But I am one of those people who, even though I would love to, unless. There's that rare situation where the seat behind me is empty, which I don't think has happened in years and years. I'm not going to recline because I think it's rude. Now, that doesn't mean that other people won't be reclining. Now, the problem is if you try to recline your seat when six foot one Jeff is sitting there, you're not going to get very far because you're going to just bang right into my knees as you start to go back. And I'm not giving way on this. So you can try to go back, but you're not going to get very far. But people will try nevertheless. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, the seats are built to recline. When the pilot comes on, once you've hit, you know, cruising altitude, they'll typically say something like, sit back, relax, enjoy your flight. All right. You can. The seats are, in general, they're made to recline. Should you recline your seat on a, and again, we're talking about the type of flights that we all have nowadays, full flight it's not like there's nobody behind you. You know, do you recline your seat into the six foot one guy who's sitting behind you? Or do you just make the decision, you know, I wouldn't like it if the guy or gal in front of me did that. I'm not going to do it to the person behind me. 855-616-1620. I've got poll results on this that I will share with you. But my question is, 
you're on that plane, are you reclining your seat? And if you're the person that has your seat, the seat in front of you being reclined into you, how do you respond to that? We discuss in just a minute, 855-616-1620. Jeff, I'm 6'8". I hate when someone tries to recline um, with me pushing back. No, I think that it's um, rude. Jeff, um, I'm 6'3", 230 pounds. I avoid flying like the plague. It's horrible. I can't even stand up in the bathroom. The whole experience is awful. Well, yeah, but we're discussing, you know, what about the reclining seats? Jeff, I wish none of the seats reclined. It would solve a lot of the problems. There's not enough room. And as a 5'10 lady with long legs, there's nothing like the seat hitting your knees. Now, people who are what we're going to describe as seat leaners, the, the argument is you paid for the seat, so you should be able to use it any way you want. Well, okay, I'm not sure about that because there's all sorts of things that if you try to do them in your seat, they're not going to let you do. But the other argument is if you're not supposed to lean back, the seats wouldn't be allowed to lean back. All right, 855-616-1620. You will undoubtedly, if you're flying anywhere this summer, you may be faced with this issue. All right. Should people recline their seats on airplanes? Let's talk to. Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, I personally do not recline my seat because I'm conscious of the other persons around me. And uh, if someone's reclining their seat into me, I will block it uh, to keep my comfort zone. Okay, so, uh, as much as I can. Like, so how do you block it? Well, I just keep my knees up against yeah. the chair. From yeah. A, yeah, that's what I end up. I mean, you know, yeah, no, I know exactly what you. That that's. I mean, thanks. That that's what I end up doing as well. And it and part of it is just because, again, my my size. That's that's where I end up fitting. And you know, you're you're going to. There's just not enough room. The way airplanes are designed nowadays, and the way they've got all the seats that are crammed into the cabins. There's just. I, I, maybe it's just the way my body is configured, but it's six one. Um, boom, you're going to be banging into my knees, and, and yeah, you're going to meet resistance. I'm not going to just simply pull them back. So maybe that's rude on my part, but it's kind of like, you know, hey, pal, I'm not reclining. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna tough this out. Maybe you need to tough it out as well. All right, different perspective. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. Okay, are you a recliner or not? Yeah, I one of the few times I disagree is because I'm a little shorter than you. I'm about 5'10". Um, what I've noticed is that when you recline, you really don't get much comfort. And if you're behind someone, yeah. I'm sorry, Mike. We're, lo- we're losing your cell phone there. Well, I, yeah, I don't. I mean, it's been so long since I have reclined a seat that I really don't know that it's going to add that much. Um, I, I guess I just I kind of think it's rude. <laughs> and. And my my experience is that most see it's kind of funny because I would say that most people don't do it. However, I promised you a poll. Um, uh, let's see a new poll that's out out um, poll of flyers by something called App in the Air found that among the general flying public, roughly half of the passengers support reclining in their seat. So about 50-50, if you are a frequent traveler, frequent flyers say they believe, 70% believe they should be able to recline their seat. 
Uh, see, I don't think so. I, I go back again with the belief that it's it's rude. Um, Jeff, I fly around the Midwest for work one to three times a week. I'm six feet tall. I don't have any knee room to spare. I would say about 95% of the passengers do not recline their seats, and I am forever graced, grateful. But when they do, I sometimes make it a point that they are up against my knees, um, and I push back. Um, Jeff, Chicago to Shanghai, 15 hours in the air. I paid $150 each way to choose my window seat or my seat, window or aisle. I never reclined my chair. Um, now, I don't mind if the person in front of me reclined theirs because I'm usually asleep. Now, if you start kicking my chair, we have a problem. Well, yeah, I had a flight back from Europe and there was a little girl who, when she wasn't coughing, she was kicking the seat of, actually, it was my wife, and who was, my wife said, oh, the, the parents, they, they're, they're, I feel bad for the parents. I said, the heck with the parents. I feel bad for us. Russ, oh, wrong button. Russ in Waukesha. Russ, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Russ. I'm 6'9", oh, and flying is a miserable experience, has been forever but now that they're jamming the seats closer and closer together i mean everyone's got to be miserable flying you know i when i get in a seat and i I try to pay pay extra you know to get the exit row or a bulkhead anything to reduce issues um you know sometimes you get the guy in front of you who just I'll give him the benefit of the doubt unaware of his surroundings (laughs) as as, as opposed to being a complete jerk (laughs) Well, yes, sir. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if it, I don't recline hardly. You know, if I do, it's just to stretch my back a little bit. I, right. But uh, uh, these guys that do, I'll just end up, you know, I've got long legs, so I just put my knees up against it. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's not good. Right. Well, a few more. Well, right. That, that, see, and then what happens is then the, the people are trying to push them back, and you, you kind of want to say, it's not going. I, one time, the guy kept trying to push back. He said, it's not going anywhere, sir. You know, it's just, I, I'm I'm back here. And, you know, it, I guess if you want to wait till I get up to go to the bathroom and there's nobody to provide resistance, I don't know if, what I can do then. But otherwise, you know, you're, you're going to try to recline. It's just not. The other thing, and one of our texters makes this point, Russ, the the amount of space nowadays that you gain by reclining is so minimal that you know why you would why you would antagonize the people behind you is kind of beyond me well yeah and it always seems to me and, and i i'm somewhat uh, biased on this is they give all the those exit rows and so on they always seem to be short short people. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thanks for the call i I appreciate it. Thank I got I to gotta think about that. I, well, it, it is. Um, OK, so my wife is a perfect height. She's like five, four. And I'm six, one. And, you know, it, it is interesting because I, I'll look and, and she can sit in the middle seat. And I think she'd prefer to have an aisle or the window. But sometimes because, she, believe it or not, she wants to sit next to me. You know, she'll sit in the middle seat. And and at five, four, it's not it's not as bad. I'm not saying it's pleasant. It's not as bad as that. Now, there is, I was thinking, you know, they were doing these questions. Shaquille O'Neal. I remember I, I was watching something. They were asking people questions. Just Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball star. And the question to him was, aisle or window? And, of course, he's like seven feet tall and stuff. Aisle or window? And without missing a beat, his line was, private. 
know, which is, I thought, okay, well, that's, that's kind of the way to go. That makes sense. WTMJ Breaking News time is 2.32 p.m. from the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Here's Wyatt Barmore-Pooley. Thanks, Jeff. If you're that tall, you've got to find a way to make yourself rich enough to be able to not fly commercial. Like, I feel like basketball is just a way for him never have to fly Southwest. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I, you, I, you wouldn't expect to see Shaquille O'Neal lined up, you know, okay, what's your board? Hey, buddy, what's your boarding number? You're A22, huh? Okay. <laughs> that would be a tough experience. We will continue to keep you updated on traffic. They're um, getting reports. Some Actually, some of our texters are reporting that there's a large fire at a recycling center in the Menominee Valley um, that's generating just a ton of smoke which is perhaps contributing to some of the delays. There's delays now on 94 West. So we'll, we'll continue to keep you updated on that. That's just some of the initial um, initial reports. Here, here's some other breaking news for, for those of us who are sports fans. Um, if you – now, first of all, let, let's understand – 162 Brewers games, you're going to hear them on the radio. Home games are going to have Bob Euchre. You know, road games are going to have our great broadcast team as well. Doesn't matter. You're going to hear the games. So you can always listen to the games on WTMJ. Watching the games, a little bit of a different story. Um, Bally Sports, which is, of course, that's that's the local platform here. Bally Sports that carries the Bucks and, and the Brewers. Um, the way it works, Sinclair Broadcasting is the overall company. And Sinclair Broadcasting owns TV stations all across the country. Diamond Sports Group is a subsidiary of Sinclair. So follow me on this. And Diamond Sports Group is the company that operates a number of what they call RSNs, which is Regional Sports Network. And that includes like Bally Sports Wisconsin. So Bally Sports Wisconsin has the rights to carry the Brewers games and the Bucks game. There will be a Bally Sports San Diego. There'll be there's 14 different regional sports networks that are are part of uh, the, the umbrella of of Diamond Sports Group. Diamond Sports Group has gone into bankruptcy. Not Sinclair Broadcasting, but the subsidiary, Diamond Sports Group, has gone into bankruptcy. Why? Well, it's because of the economics of of what's going on. Diamond Sports Group pays rights fees to the individual teams for the rights to carry the, the games, right? So they write a check to San Diego Padres, for for example. So, you know, they... You know, they make a commitment that we're going to pay the San Diego Padres X amount of dollars in exchange for the rights to carry their game. What they then in turn do is they turn around and they they sell their services to different cable providers. Hey, Spectrum, carry us. You pay us X amount of dollars and we're going to produce the games and you have the San Diego Padre games on, on your network. Well, the problem is, and again, I'm simplifying this. But the rights fees that are being paid aren't are, are too great. They're, what they're able to do, what sports networks are able to do, these regional sports networks, they're not getting enough money from the cable providers to cover the rights fees that they have to pay. So as a result, they're, they're losing money, and Diamonds has now gone into bankruptcy. Well, I, I bring this up because 
it's just been announced that uh, Bally Sports San Diego, which is one of the regional sports networks, um, that has been um, pulled off pulled off the air because um, they, they didn't make the payments. News arrived Tuesday. The Diamond Sports Group um, has missed a payment to the San Diego Padres and that Padres broadcast would be abruptly pulled from the Bally Sports platform. So now there's the question of, okay, what, what's going to happen? Major League Baseball says it, it'll step in, and just because this is going on in San Diego doesn't mean that it's going to go on in Milwaukee. It's a little bit of a different dynamic, and all these stories are different. But it is, it's an interesting time, and I point this out because there, there was at least a point in time where I think people thought the desire to watch games, whether it's baseball or basketball or hockey or whatever, that that would just grow to the roof and you can have all these great rights fees and things like that. That's that's not playing out right now. And you're starting to see this with this bankruptcy. Now, again, Major League Baseball says that if if uh, Bally Sports can't make its payments to the teams, et cetera, they'll still find a way to provide you know, some sort of tele, some sort of uh, visual coverage. It might be through Major League Baseball providing the streaming themselves, whatever. But at least right now, you're starting to see some of these uh, teams that aren't they're losing their broadcast homes because of this bankruptcy. Okay, here is the deal: Philadelphia has the third largest um, train station in the the country. You know, uh, I think Chicago and New York is larger, but then it's Philadelphia. I'm talking about Amtrak and then computer commuter trains and things like that. For decades and decades and decades, there has been a newsstand right outside the train station. So you have commuters running in and running out, stopping at the newsstand and, and buying stuff, you know, for now oh, you're getting on the train, you know, you want something to read, et cetera, et cetera. The news is, would you like to guess what the newsstand has stopped selling outside the train station? Charlie, you want to guess? Newspapers. Ah, he's got it. Look at the big brain on my producer, Charlie. Yep. Um, the newsstand has stopped selling newspapers. They say, they say, well, why did you stop selling newspapers? Because, you know, to, keep in mind, 20 years ago, they, they would sell, I mean, almost everybody that was getting on a train or getting off a train, you'd, you'd, grab the, you'd grab a newspaper to read on the train or whatever. They say they weren't making any mon- money off of newspapers. We were making like a couple pennies a day off of newspapers. They say that in recent times, the stand rarely sold more than a dozen daily papers each day. And this is, you know, of thousands and thousands of people going to and fro. Now, they still sell other stuff. They sell Skittles. You know, they they sell, you know, potato chips. You know, they sell some books. Um, They sell some magazines. But they no longer sell newspapers because nobody was buying newspapers. I was thinking, you know, we're, we're down here at the Avenue, formerly the Grand Avenue. And if you are a longtime Milwaukee resident, you will remember that on Wisconsin Avenue, about, oh, about two blocks to the east of where I am sitting now, there used to be this huge newsstand. 
and and it was it was packed. People would come down there. You could get, you know, they had a variety of newspapers. You could get magazines. People sometimes would wait for the late edition of the newspaper to come out. They'd have the racing forms that would come out. It was this thriving business. And now it, like many, many newsstands, is is gone. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. The newsstand is still there, but they don't sell the newspapers anymore. Here is my question. Realistically, five years from now, are we still going to have daily newspapers or is everything going to be digital? 855-616-1620. And if you can't make a go of selling newspapers at a newsstand right outside a train station in the third busiest city in the United States, how in the world are you going to continue? How in the world can you make a living producing and selling hard copies of newspapers? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Okay, so the third busiest Amtrak station in the country is in downtown Philadelphia. There's a newsstand that's been operating since 1933. They've just announced that you can no longer buy newspapers at the newsstand. They estimate that 4 million people pass through this particular station in any given year. They average 12 newspapers sold a day. And so they came to the conclusion that by the time it just by, – by, by what you would make, you, you get the newspapers delivered. You have to you know, open them up. You have to put them out. And then when you don't sell them, you send them back because you get a credit for it. They said it was just we, – we were losing money because nobody bought any of these. Um, and it's not that people don't want the news, but it's that people don't want it in this delivery fashion. And I, I'm just going to tell you, I think that there will be there will be a couple papers that survive in the printed form. That maybe the USA Today in hotels, maybe the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times in the national sort of publications. But the various local publications that are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I just don't see physically how you can continue to spend the money to print them, spend the money to then deliver them to people's houses or deliver them to the newsstands. Newsstands don't want them anymore because nobody is buying them. Now, this doesn't mean that, quote unquote, newspapers are going to go away, but I think I think it's going to be pretty much all digital. Jeff, we get the local newspaper twice a week only because my wife likes to do the crossword puzzles. Well, you can print them off the Internet. We just got notice the other day that the daily paper is only going to be offered three times a week and that postal carriers will be delivering it. Seems like it's moving very close to not offering a physical paper. Yeah, that's where I, I think you're – that's where I think it, it's it's going here. number of people are saying, well, newspapers are a shell of their former selves. I love reading a good newspaper in my hands. It's a sad state of affairs. It is, but it's the reality. And if you wonder why this is happening, you, you just look at the dynamics. One of the largest cities in the country, one of the five largest cities in the country, third busiest train station, a newsstand no longer sells newspapers because there's no money in it. Wow. 855-616-1620. 